0: Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't
1: he? Welcome to What a
0: Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura.
1: Well, thanks, Dr. Bill, and hi, everybody. Welcome to the show, and it's a special one at that. You know, like many of you, I always have a few books going, but there are books, and then there are vacation books. I love vacation books, probably for obvious reasons. Julie and our three boys just returned from a wonderful 12 days in New England, first in Boston and then in Maine, and one of the books that I devoured on our trip was written by today's guest. I just loved it, and I know you will, too. James Rosen is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. Now, Chris Ruddy, the CEO of Newsmax, has said that James Rosen is not only a reporter's reporter, but also a great thinker and author who can share complex issues on a TV screen and explain them in clear and understandable ways. Well, you probably know James uh, not only from Newsmax, but also from Fox News, where he reported for almost two decades. He's also a prolific writer, researcher, and was even accused of being a co-conspirator with North Korea during the Obama administration just for doing his job. Uh, He's also a husband and father. But first today, we're going to talk about his latest book. It's called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. In other words, this is just part one of a sweeping and detailed look at the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who passed away in 2016. James Rosen, it's a privilege to have you with us today.
2: Well, you're very kind. Thank you, Paul. And it's an honor for me to be with you.
1: Well, we're going to talk about your life in the second half of today's conversation. But but we want to start out talking about this great book, because as I said, uh, everybody needs to get this book. If if you're a Supreme Court watcher, if you are a uh, interested in interesting people and in American history, this is a must read. Um, but I'm curious. I know you worked on this book for five years. There have, been a, there have been 116 justices on the high court. Why did you choose Justice Scalia to pour so much time into a project?
2: Well, again, thank you for having me, Paul. Um, uh, I actually had the privilege of knowing Justice Scalia a little bit. Um, when I first came to Washington in 1999 as a fresh, new, young Washington correspondent at the time for Fox News, one of the first things I did was write to Justice Scalia and ask for an interview. And this commenced between us, um, a lengthy and frequently amusing correspondence that spanned about two years, and um, it led to a pair of lunches between us, one-on-one each time, at his favorite place, now long gone, his beloved AV Ristorante Italiano, um, which um, was a very modest Italian restaurant located in what was then a fairly sketchy neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and we drank wine together. He made me eat off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. He said, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm, now I'm shoveling vegetables from Justice Scalia's plate into my mouth. Uh, he even gave me a ride back to uh, my office both times in his car. And he was uh, the reason I, I wrote him in the first place is because even earlier still, in the 1980s in high school, I had seen Justice Scalia on a, an old PBS program called The Constitution, That Delicate Balance, which was sort of a a live theater-in-the-round setting with a studio audience and a nebuchadnezzar moderator named Fred Friendly, who had formerly been the president of CBS News, and they convened eminent minds of the time, Antonin Scalia, Sandra Day O'Connor, Dan Rather, Gerald Ford, and these eminent minds would contemplate hypothetical scenarios together, and just watching that, of course, I wasn't a lawyer in high school, and I'm still not one yet, um, but I I just found that um, Justice Scalia spoke in a way that lay audiences could understand, which I later learned was very important to him, even up through and including his opinions from the Supreme Court. Uh, And that's the same with this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. It's written for all people, not just for lawyers. Uh, And he was humorous and unafraid to be caustic and sarcastic. And he just struck me as fundamentally unlike all the other panelists. So I wrote to him. We had lunch a couple times. Um, We never did an interview proper. I do hope to, um, to quote from some of that correspondence in volume two, um, but our substantive discussions at lunch will remain off the record as they were. But just because he was so generous to a young reporter a quarter century ago, I resolved that someday I would write about this man. And what I found, Paul, was that there were already two existing biographies of Justice Scalia, both of which were published while he was still alive. One of them he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all. And both of these biographies reached pretty much the same place, which is to say, open in their hostility to Justice Scalia, his conduct, his jurisprudence, his legacy. So I like to say that this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, which covers the first 50 years of the justice's life, it ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. It shows us how he got to the pinnacle of American law. Um, And I like to say that this book uh, is the first to be undertaken since the Justice's death. It makes use of a vast array of uh, documentary and personal sources that were either unavailable to or overlooked by the previous hostile biographers. Uh, And I like to say that it's really the first accurate biography of Justice Scalia for the precise reason that it is the first admiring one. That's why I wrote this book.
1: Mm, all good reasons. I'm <clears throat> I'm curious, Did you, do you know if he regretted cooperating with that first biographer?
2: <laughs> I never got to ask him directly, uh, but I know that the book is not uh, well-received amongst those who consider themselves the most ardent defenders of Justice Scalia, his family, his clerks, uh, certain academicians.
1: You talk about uh, having lunch with him, and— uh, if, if my, is my memory correct that he forced you to eat rabbit?
2: Yes. Okay, so yes. So this I am permitted to tell. I got to the AV Ristorante Italiano first, and it was a dark-looking place, and it had a long sort of straight shoot uh, before you would get to the tables. And this was in November 1999. I was 30, um, nervous. Uh, The sun was flooding through the front door of the place, and suddenly a silhouette appeared in that sunlit front door, somewhat portly and striding jauntily towards me. And there is Justice Scalia, and he sits down. Our waiter was an actual, he was actually Italian. He was a young guy. He barely spoke any English. And he's there to take our order, and, and Justice Scalia has the menu, and he says, Pulpy, what is Pulpy? And the waiter says, Octopus, or Octopus. Says, octopus. And, and Scleus says, ah, octopus, I'll have the pulpy. And he hands the, the the menu back. and Now, I have little rules that I use when I'm dining with people on whom I want to make a good impression. I don't eat anything that requires me to eat with my hands, nothing that splatters, stuff that's just easily yeah. manipulable with a, a knife and fork so you can maintain eye contact and all that good stuff. And, and I come from Staten Island, New York, which when I grew up there was about 66% Italian, so I thought I knew what to order. I just said, I'll have the veal parmesan, nice and easy. And the guy writes it down. And Justice Scalia interrupts and he says, "No, give him the rabbit." (laughs) And the waiter and I look at Justice Scalia in unison, and we both say, "Rabbit." And he goes, "Yeah, he's gonna. You're gonna like the rabbit. Give him the rabbit." And off the (laughs) waiter goes with our menus. And now I have to tell you, Paul, I had never had rabbit in my life up to that point. I didn't want rabbit. Um, And what we had here was nothing less than the country's foremost opponent of judicial activism, <laughs> overruling my lunch order.
1: <laughs> Not good for his reputation.
2: <laughs> in jurisprudential terms, anyway. Uh, I, I, I endured the rabbit, um, I, and that has never happened to me since, where someone just overruled my lunch order, nor have I had rabbits since.
1: The way you tell that story, I can almost hear the Godfather music playing in the background as he enters the restaurant <laughs> or something, but... That's so I will good. tell
2: you that dining with this man, he was so down-to-earth and, and funny and charming that uh, you could be forgiven for forgetting from time to time that you were in the presence of one of the greatest minds of our times. He just seemed like your avuncular Italian uncle, like a Paul Sorvino type. Yeah. Um, that's how down-to-earth he was, making me eat off of his plate.
1: Well, let's go a little bit in chronological order because that's obviously how you wrote the book. Although I have to admit, I, I cheated and I read uh, the confirmation hearing chapter first. Just I'm sure I'm not the only one who does that in some time, from time to time, but it was so good, obviously, that I went back at the very beginning. But now early in the book, you mentioned that uh, Justice Scalia himself uh, never considered himself to be the true success of his family. You mentioned that his father— uh, He thought his father should get that designation. Why?
2: So for many prominent individuals of the 20th century, or who rose in the 20th century, um, we might root them uh, and the formation of their character and personality in a, a major event, let's say, like the Depression or World War II or what have you. And in Justice Scalia's case, we would place him in the context of the immigrant experience. And in fact, at the time of his confirmation, it was widely and accurately stated that Justice Scalia's life story embodied the American dream. Um, Justice Scalia's father came to this country from Sicily in 1920 with only $400 in his pocket and not speaking a word of English. And he made of himself a renowned professor of Romance Languages at Brooklyn College for 30 years. Um, Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of of italian immigrants and she became a schoolteacher they were devout catholics and from these three influences his mother who venerated form and composition and who made sure that young nino scalia stayed on the right path hosted the cub scout meetings in her own den uh, from his father who was a sterner character and who warned in his own published academic writings of the perils of the meaning of an original sacred piece of text being distorted by a dishonest translator or interpreter. And from the sacred foundational texts of the Catholic Church itself, the liturgy of the Catholic Church, Galea emerged with a profound reverence for the immutability, the inviolability, of the meaning of original sacred texts. And he carried this forward with him the rest of his life, uh, onto his work on the federal bench and ultimately the Supreme Court. He was a valedictorian at his high school and his college, and graduated top five from Harvard Law School. His high school and college were both Jesuit institutions. Um, His high school, Xavier High School, still in Manhattan, was a very unusual institution in that it was both a Jesuit private school and a military academy. Justice Scalia used to delight in telling audiences in later years how he commuted on the subway in his cadet's uniform from Queens uh, to Manhattan, back and forth, carrying, casually slung over his shoulder, his twenty-two rifle, without anyone batting an eye about that. Um, and um, the Jesuits were known at that time for their intellectual rigor. And something happened in, uh, in high school years that, he, that stayed with him for the rest of his life. He spoke about it for the rest of his life. He called it the Shakespeare Principle. There was one fearsome Irish Jesuit priest who spoke with a thick Boston brogue named Father Tom Matthews, who no one messed with uh, quite sensibly. But on one occasion, they were reading Hamlet, and some wise guy in the class, not Scalia, piped up with a sophomore comment about the play. And Father Matthews glared down at the offending wise guy, and he said, Mister, when you are reading Shakespeare, Shakespeare is not on trial. You are. <laughs> and the reason it stayed with Scalia as the Shakespeare principle was that uh, there are there are certain texts that are that are original, that are sacred, whose meaning does not change um, over time. And that is the heart of the the revolution that Scalia brought to the law in this country. Um, When he joined the federal bench in the mid-1980s, there prevailed in the law a liberal notion called the living constitution. The idea that the constitution and its meaning should expand um, to like a living organism would in order to take account of phenomena, modern day phenomena, that the founders could never have envisioned, such as the internet or nuclear weapons, uh, in order to breathe this expanded meaning into these provisions, liberal judges uh, bypassed the text of the Constitution or a given statute and instead looked at what they like to call the legislative intent. And that was to be divined from the legislative history. What was said in all of those floor debates on the House and Senate floor? What was said in those committee reports that were generated? Scalia stood athwart all that. He said their intent was what they voted on and what a president signed into law. And the original meaning is what judges should adhere to, not grafting their own latter day policy preferences onto existing texts like the Constitution or a given law. Uh, and how to divine the original meaning? By looking directly at the text. So, first, Justice Scalia, I like to say that textualism was the metal detector that he would use to find original meaning. Uh, and this. This changed the way the law is rendered in this country for every single American.
1: The voice you're hearing is that of James Rosen. He's the uh, chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and uh, author of a wonderful biography called Scalia, Rise to Greatness. Um, James, talking about his father, uh, I can't help but wonder, did he struggle at all uh, with his dad? I mean, his dad was pretty intense. Uh, you mentioned that he even would sometimes mark up his opinions or papers that he would send to his father, I presume looking for some affirmation from his dad, but what role do you think that um, that father-son relationship played in his development?
2: I interviewed uh, four of Justice Scalia's nine children for this book, not a majority in Supreme Court terms, but still a, a healthy sampling. And they told me that uh, Justice Scalia's father was, was much sterner than his mother Uh, that um, uh, if you came home with a report card that had, uh, let's say, five A-pluses and one A-minus, he would look at the A-minus and raise an eyebrow about that. (laughs) And yes, even as a judge on the Court of Appeals, one rung below the Supreme Court, uh, Judge Scalia would send his latest opinions to his father, who would mark them up in red pen. And even the grandchildren, the Scalia children, received this same uh, red pen markup when they would send letters to their grandfather. Um, but he instilled in young Nino Scalia um, a, not only this reverence for the original inviolable meaning of sacred texts, but, but also um, a, a work ethic. Uh, and, and, and it has to be said, um, this devout Catholicism. Catholicism was really, I like to say, the rocket fuel for Scalia's rise to greatness. But you put that together with Scalia's own innate genius, his inexhaustible capacity for hard work his affability, and also it must be said the contributions and sacrifices which were extraordinary of Maureen Scalia, uh, the justice's wife for fifty five years and the uh, and the person who mostly raised those nine children and that is how he made it to the pinnacle of American law
1: yeah, you mentioned Maureen, and I know that she 's been quoted or, or at least people have qualified her as the real intellect of the family, which is saying something when you 're Uh, have Justice Scalia in the room. Um, I love the fact that uh, they were introduced right by a gentleman uh, who had his own challenges, right? I mean, to me, this speaks to the sovereignty of God to have a gentleman who's, didn't he struggle with bipolar? He was a bipolar guy who introduced the two of them? Yes, and this was a
2: Harvard Law classmate of Justice, of uh, Antonin Scalia's, who introduced him to Maureen McCarthy, um, who was a brilliant Radcliffe student and um, at first, she was leery that she was going to have a good time with this Antonin Scalia, Nino Scalia of Harvard Law, whose idea of a good date was to bring her to the Harvard Law Review dinner. Uh, and she contrived an excuse to be able to get out uh, on the early side of things. But she found herself having such a good time on their first date uh, that she, she uh, her, absented herself so that she could make a pre, uh, or appear to be making the phone call that would uh, be her dos ex machina to leave early. And instead, she arranged to stay later. Uh, then she didn't hear from Nino for about two months. He later explained it was finals time. Um, and um, he he has talked about what a tragedy it would have been if, if he had never called her again. Um, I got to ask uh, Maureen Scalia about the manner in which Nino proposed to her, because that's been recorded nowhere else in the literature surrounding him. Uh, He took her to dinner in New Hope, Pennsylvania. He had a ring. Uh, He did not get down on one knee. I don't think that'll surprise many people. But it's true what you say, and this was stated by one of uh, the Scalia daughters uh, who spoke at uh, the memorial service for her dad and who said, everyone who knows the two of them knows that my mom is uh, at least as smart, and dare I say it's smarter than my dad. Mm. It was not to Antonin Scalia or Justice Scalia that the children would go for homework, uh, for help with their math homework.
1: Well, uh, you know, one of the great charms of this book is uh, the new information you've dug up. Uh, you know, you're intrepid in your research, uh, turning over every nook and cranny, uh, you know, and digging into documents, maybe some that hadn't been available for the first um, biographers. But I would probably suggest that those first biographers probably weren't interested in some of the more um, uh, telling tales that uh, explain you know, in a good light, why Justice Scalia became the man that he was. What your process, uh, you've been a reporter for all these years, but for this book in particular, how did you go about uh, like, what was, did you have a process? Did you have a system? I mean, you could easily get uh, overwhelmed and flooded by documents and papers and oral reports and interviews. How did you, how did you manage all that?
2: Every author who who traffics in documents and reports and the, and the like, who's who's working in in the nonfiction genre, at some point does feel overwhelmed by the the material. That's normal. Uh, it's also the case that I I have a full time job and a challenging one for which I'm grateful, and so these books are that I write are are kind of like a second job. Um, but. Um, you, you mentioned some of the archival triumphs of this book, and I'm very proud of it. If you, a lot, There's a lot in, in Scalia Rise to Greatness that had never been published before. I'll give one example. In 1992, when Justice Scalia was serving in his seventh term on the Supreme Court, um, he invited a female attorney that he had known back since the Gerald R. Ford administration to uh, visit him in chambers at the Supreme Court and conduct with him, serve as the interviewer with him for a secret oral history of his life. Uh, and this is a document that extends uh, more than 50 pages long, single-spaced. And it is nothing less than Justice Scalia looking back on his life from childhood onward um, and, and really giving quite detailed answers, um, and sometimes emotional ones, about his relationships with his parents, his wife, um, his career, um, that, and this was unsealed for the first time only after his death uh, in 2016. It was unsealed in 2018. So this is the first biography to make use of such an important document in his life, a secret oral history of his own life that he conducted in the chambers of the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. And just as one example... Uh, the two previous biographers differed on how old Antonin Scalia was when he moved from his native Trenton, New Jersey, to Queens, New York, where he considered himself really to be from. Uh, one biographer put it at age three, the other at age six. And in fact, thanks to this uh, newly uh, unsealed uh, oral history of his own life, we hear in his own words, Justice Scalia say, I, we, we moved uh, to Queens when I was five. So it helped settle that one Um, small but significant um, divergence or discrepancy in the telling of his life story thus far. I also had access to his FBI files. Uh, Justice Scalia, as he rose through the executive and judicial branches, uh, which is the story of this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, was subjected to four different FBI background investigations within a 14-year span. It's very unusual. And these run hundreds of pages. And on some of these investigations, the FBI, the premier law enforcement organization, cranked up its vast machinery in an effort to find any kind of derogatory information of any nature that might exist anywhere in the world about Antonin Scalia. And instead, all they turned up was the most superlative of testimonials, interviewing people, throwing out a dragnet that extended back to 1949 when Scalia was 13 years old. And time and time again, as you read these hundreds of pages of FBI files, The agents keep hearing the same things over and over again. Um, This is not just an honest man. This is the most honest man I've ever met. This is not just a brilliant man. This is the most brilliant man I've ever met. This man is not just qualified to be a federal judge. He is the best possible candidate you could devise for a federal judge. And as I say in the book, Paul, would that all lives paid such close scrutiny, rewarded with such superlative testimonials.
1: Mm. That's well said. I'm envisioning your office maybe a little bit like Robert Caro, you know, who devoted his life, <laughs> has devoted his life. He's still living. And I. It, there seems to be some parallels here, James, with, uh, you know, here he started out writing about Robert Moses. His publisher famously said, I think I can get people interested in him once, uh, but I don't think I can get him interested in twice. Would he have to cut 300,000 words or something from the book? You you were smart. You, you split your books in two and uh, didn't try and jam it all that
2: though. My my first book was a biography of Attorney General John Mitchell from the Watergate era, and who's a very important man in in post-war American life. And I wrote something like 500,000 words um, just because I wanted to get it all down, what I call the the director's cut. I knew that the publisher, which at that time was Doubleday, would not share my Caro-esque view of John Mitchell's (laughs) life. Uh, and in the end, uh, what was published, w- of which I remain proud, a book called The Strong Man*, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate, uh, published in 2008, uh, was something on the order of 600 pages, and that was nearly 250,000 words. So I have felt Robert Caro's pain, if, if, if not his material reward.
1: Well, I, I, I much prefer your subjects, honestly, to his, and so... Uh, it's it's terrific to talk with you. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're listening. We're talking with James Rosen, author of Scalia: Rise to Greatness. I'm Paul Petura, This is What a Life, and uh, we'll be back just after this break.